Now, before I get to the not the split sermon, it's by Reginald, and he's a guy who I've admired for with my choosing my song selections every week, and I just like the song selection he does. I just want to tell that to everyone. Now, time for a split sermon by my man Reginald. Our moral compass. Thank you, Owen. As a matter of fact, um, I shout out to you for doing, selecting the songs you did because they had elements in them that's going to lead right into my message. So thank you there. Uh, a note of disclaimer before I start here. I wrote this message uh, about uh, six weeks or so ago. Gave Sherry my title about five weeks ago. And since then, I have watched the speakers come up here and systematically give pieces after pieces after pieces of my message. So there's very little left here uh, to say except my basic framework, which is that of the, the compass itself. Um, also, since I gave this gave Sherry my title and finished the message. There's been all sorts of things happening in the political and social world out here that, uh, well, if I included that, it'd make the message about twice as long. So uh, a lot of scandal, a lot of things that are going on. All right, so now let's begin. The end of days prophecies that we are, have revealed to us in Revelation and in Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, the Olivet prophecies, things like that, they paint for us a world that is increasingly evil. Right up until the moment that Christ returns and catches us unaware, as Second Peter uh, 3, 10 and 11 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the, uh, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt up. Therefore, since all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be to be in ought you to be in holy conduct and in godliness. There's an old adage that says that our true character is revealed when we, uh, by how we behave in those moments when we think that no one is looking. When we're going about our normal everyday business, eating and drinking, buying and selling, get marrying, giving in marriage, at work or at play, behaving morally, or lying, cheating, stealing, devising malicious schemes, etc., um, Matthew uh, 24, 36 to 39. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away so also will be the son of the coming of man. It is also predicted to be uh, unprecedented in history, unlike any other day that has ever come before it. Uh, Matthew 24, 21, and 22. For then there shall be great tribulation, such as, was not since, uh, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days shall be shortened, no flesh shall be saved, and Moffat adds alive, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Today, despite having amassed the largest police force, 
uh, short of martial law, crime continues largely unabated. And as of June 7, 2018, Oklahoma now has the prestigious title of most incarcerated population. Did you realize that? The Oklahoma now leads the nation in per capita incarceration rate at the rate of 1,079 per 100,000 people, just surpassing, of all places, Louisiana, uh, at 1052 per 100,000 uh, people, according to Grimwood and Hinchley in the Tulsa World, June 7, 2018. Further, Oklahoma's legislative leaders, dominated by people who supposedly advocate family values, are among the most corrupt. Since the presidential election uh, uh, in 2016, Oklahoma has had nine special elections for state legislative seats. Now granted, four of them went to more lucrative positions, a better paying job. One died, but of the remaining uh, four politicians, one legislator resigned after being charged with engaging in child prostitution, one with sexual harassment, one with sexual battery, and one resigned following an ethics commission investigation. Mm, what does that say for our state legislator? Oh, by the way, did you hear it, uh, recently about what happened in uh, Washington, D.C.? Uh, Cardinal Theodore McCarrick has now been uh, brought up on charges. This is a cardinal, this is a very high-ranking person in the Catholic faith for uh, sexual uh, misconduct. He, re he resigned his position. And I heard on CNN this morning that uh, there's over 150 uh, calls already been made to the, child, uh, to the sexual abuse hotline uh, since Thursday. Just since Thursday, 150 calls already. Over 3,000 uh, people have, uh, have now been, come forward and said, uh, I was sexually abused by priests or bishops. And, and the bishops have been covering it up for all these many years as well. So, something else to think about. You know, how, how, how good is our moral calm? There's an Arthurian adage that says, the land and the king are one, which means that as the leaders go, so go the people. So if we have leaders who are corrupt, who lack integrity, who are unacquainted with any semblance of the truth, even those caught in more than 3,000 lies within the first 66 days of office, who surround themselves with counselors just as corrupt as they are, who are more interested in amassing wealth, uh, power, notoriety, self-aggrandizement uh, than in the country's welfare, who engage in stormy, adulterous affairs, even with porn stars, and who are exploitive, irresponsible stewards of our land and natural resources, who are drunk on power, then how can we expect an American public, who are largely biblically illiterate, to do any better with no role models to provide them guidance? Today, the golden rule, or maybe I should say Bitcoin rule, um, seems to be tweet the others as you would like those to be tweeted. Tweet others as you would like, others, like to be tweeted. Instead of our leaders holding themselves to high standards of decorum, uh, of decorum and rectitude, they adhere to a policy of expediency. Anyone know what the expediency is? Doing whatever is necessary to achieve their desired goals without regard to, for methodology. That is to say, the ends justify the means. That's the, pro the process of expediency. This pragmatic mindset 
is corrupting the youth in particular. Um, this past year, I had to greater problems with cheating in my classroom than ever before. So much for, so much so that I had to create ten different final exam forms for each class just to get some accurate kind of uh, estimation of what their abilities are. This generation has been reared on a mentality of download, copy, and paste. And doesn't even seem to understand what cheating is. Um, in their eyes, this is unauthorized collusion, that is copying answers and submitting the work as their own. It's not cheating. It is collaboration. It is groupthink. It is networking or sharing, to use the social media term. In their, in their eyes, ideas and information, even art and music, are public domain. Public domain. There's no such thing as copyright laws or intellectual property. Until I get caught. When making reports, they do not even give bibliographical credit to the sources from which they stole the information. They are submitting dishonest work, but do not recognize the dishonesty. They don't recognize that they're being dishonest right now. Truthfully, I'm not sure. Are they intentionally being dishonest? I don't know. Uh, I, they may just be morally ignorant or amoral like their political leaders. It all goes back to that fixed, pragmatic mindset. They are not working for pure knowledge and understanding anymore. Rather, they are working to get a score on a test and a grade in the class. That's it. That's all they're working for. Unlike students I had a decade or more ago, the millennials are a group of mimics. Not thinkers. Mimics. Instead of learning concepts, that is to say, genuinely understanding and internalizing key ideas, and applying those concepts to a given situation, today's students merely want me to show them how to do a particular problem so they can copy it and duplicate it for a similar problem on the exam. I can't possibly replicate all, possible, all problems. Again, they seem to be working for grades instead of for understanding. I feel that uh, if given the op option, they would choose to have a USB port installed in the back of their skulls so which they could download the information and skills, like the denizens of the Matrix did, instead of having to learn it through experience and hard work. Personally, I would be paranoid. I don't know about the rest of you, but I would be paranoid to have a, something downloaded into my brain. Uh, I would... Uh, I would be concerned about what kind of other things might be downloaded along with information. Backdoor Trojans, control devices, pre-programmed ideas. That make me very, very paranoid. Um, I would have to ask, where is the joy of learning for its own sake anymore? Where is the inquisitiveness and the intellectual curiosity that spawned the 20th century's generation of inventors and scientists and explorers? Why am I suddenly reminded of Huxley's Brave New World? Today, wealth seems to be the only yardstick by which to measure success. Duh, I wonder where they got that idea. Now, I have no moral objection to people becoming wealthy and powerful if they acquired that wealth by ethical means, like Abraham did, and not at the expense of someone else. But far too often, the desire for wealth and power can deflect us off of the ethical path.
encouraging less than honorable practices toward others. First uh, Timothy uh, 6, 9 uh, to 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the path in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Luke 16:13 makes it a little bit clearer. No, this is Luke citing the words of Jesus. Uh, no servant can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And mammon is, of course, the god of money and greed and war. So, let us serve God and not the 285 Ferengi rules of acquisition. Okay. While many of my students may be ignorant of honesty and integrity, nearly all are proficient at data search and retrieval, and most of them are quite knowledgeable of sexuality. Now, granted, I grew up in a, a little more innocent time, such that such things were not so openly discussed, but my ninth graders today know more about sex than I did in graduate school. Okay. When I was in high school, the only thing I knew about sex was to check mail on the demographic form of the test. That's it. Okay, but the, these guys... Mm. Um, marriage, sex, and children are supposed to be the developmental task of young adulthood, not adolescence. Yet today's teenager knows enough to make a sailor blush. Conflict within each of us is a war between the carnal self and our more noble nature. The only way to win is never give them the chance to do battle. Never give them the chance to do battle. Hence the danger of experimenting with drugs. One exposure to drugs can be sufficient to ruin a life because the drugs um, imitate the uh, structure of some of the, the uh, pleasure, the, the neurotransmitters, like dopamine, for example. They have the same structure. So what happens is the drugs fill up the, the dopamine of the receptors, the neurotransmitter receptors in the brain, and it clogs them up, making each, making a requirement for a greater and greater high each time uh, they try the drugs. So it's a continual downhill battle. Jeremiah tells us, this, is, this has been cited here in the last several weeks quite frequently. I don't know why this seems to be a very popular verse all of a sudden. Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our heart is corrupt. If we couple that with the proverb, uh, Proverbs 16:25, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And morality already has two strikes against us. Mark tells us that watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Truly, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So if we let the two of them fight, guess who's going to win? Most of the time, the flesh will win. Romans um, 7 through uh, 25. Paul describes his inner struggle uh, and our utter inability to behave righteously during it. Notice how the law functions in each of these, uh, in its deliberation. Notice, the, I'll emphasize some of this as we go along. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I have, 
uh, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. <laughs> anyway, um, what happened? All right. Um, but sin, taking opportunity by commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring forth death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, notice this statement, the law is holy, and the commandment, holy and just and good, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear as sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that the sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal and sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that what I do. If then I do what I will not do, I agree with the law that it is good. So he is not denouncing the law. He's holding the law up as the standard and measuring himself by it. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is is present with me, but to how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will not will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Again, notice he's delighting in the law. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. Truly, we have lost our way. We are stumbling around as if we were walking around in darkness. For we have no lighthouse to guide us to shore. John 11, 9 to 10. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, does he not stumble? Because he's, uh, the, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. Uh, because he sees the light of the world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. We need, we need a moral compass to point us at least in the right direction. And then God has provided us with several manifestations of the same moral compass. Throughout all of scripture, we see the same moral compass being presented to us, but just in different manifestations. Now, Unlike a magnetic compass, 
that can become dysfunctional in the presence of, say, electronic devices or metal or uh, viral vortices, a moral compass must always point to the truth. Of course, if you don't know what the truth is, I mean, where can it point? It just spins around. Uh, to the noble path and never to waver due to uh, environmental influence. It must be a beacon that is ever constant and a light to our path. That's why I said uh, I appreciated Owen's selections today because many of these brought directly to the idea. Today, I'd like to explore the workings of three of these manifestations of God's moral compass. And it's, again, the same moral compass. The first manifestation of God's moral compass, as I've already hinted, is the law. The entire Torah but especially the Ten Commandments. The Book of Moses gives us a starting point. In order for us to grow and to move forward and to develop as children of God, we must first know where we came from. We've got to have a starting point. Specifically, here's the things we need to know. We need to know that we are created beings, made in the image of God, but not yet in his substance. We are destined to be his children, but we're given the free will to reject that inheritance. That we are conflicted creatures of dual nature, partly carnal, partly noble, who often make mistakes and go astray, but who can return to the right path by repenting and heeding God's guidance. That we, are, we have inherited the stubborn, willful, defiant nature of our ancestors. And that we have a demonic adversary who seeks to destroy us, but can do so only by tempting us to disobey God's laws. Here's the important part. However, the choice to disobey is ours alone. Scripture paints the law as a guiding compass. Proverbs 6, 20-24. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you like a compass does. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you wake, they will speak to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and a law is a light. Reproofs of instructions are the way of life. To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of the seductress. Now, here the seductress and the evil woman, although possibly literal, is really a metaphor for any kind of alluring a temptation that gets us all mm, twitterpated, shall we say. Uh, Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Three times in the Torah, Exodus 3.16, Deuteronomy 6, a, 8, uh, Deuteronomy 11, 8 through, uh, 20, 18 through 21, God thoroughly admonishes Moses, uh, God through Moses, admonishes Israel to keep the law as frontlets, that's a little thing between your eyes, effectively always pointing us in the right direction. Deuteronomy 11, 18 to 21 best summarizes this idea. The other passages basically say the same thing. So here's Deuteronomy 11, 18 to 21. Therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Uh, you shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit up in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. And you'll write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates and your, and your 
that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land uh, which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, like the days of the heavens above the earth. Okay. Second manifestation of God's moral compass is the recorded and preserved word of God in Scripture, which incidentally contains the Torah, which was the first manifestation of the moral compass. Today, we take for granted that we can go to buy a copy of the uh, Bible from our local bookstores everywhere around, except maybe in California. Uh, Ask Fran about that. Uh, Or online in either hard uh, copy or electronic version, and in many, many translations. Uh, But once upon a time, that was not so. The Roman Catholic clergy completely controlled the dispensation of the Holy Words. And that was in Latin. An illiterate populace, because public education was not readily available, was completely dependent upon the messages from the priest, having to take on faith that the priests were being truthful. We owe an immeasurable debt of gratitude to men like William Tyndall, 1494 to 1536, who at the peril of his own life translated the Holy Scriptures from the Latin and the Greek into the English of the common man, smuggled those volumes into England, and distributed them throughout the land. We owe a debt that is immeasurable for him. These were very precious volumes, paid for in blood, to put the word of God into the hands of the common man. Any literate layman could now search the scriptures himself and not have to rely on the priest. Now, if you don't realize it, this was political dynamite, for it usurped the power from the clergy. Since then, God has preserved his words with integrity through the ages so that we can have assurance that the meaning of the scriptures is the same today as it was then. We also owe a debt of gratitude to our compulsory uh, uh, public education and to our kindergarten through third grade teachers in particular uh, for teaching us how to read. By the way, did you realize that the reason for public education was that everyone could read the Bible? That was the original purpose for public education. An informed congregation is an empowered congregation. However, having access to the word is worthless unless it is open, read, and utilized. Think about what has been preserved for us through time. The Torah, the books of history, the historical account of Israel and Judah, the books of wisdom, the Psalms, the book of poetry, the major and minor prophets, the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, the letters of the Apostles to early churches, and the revelation of Jesus to John. In these works, we have guiding principles, examples of both good and bad behavior, distillations of wisdom, meditations and praise, prophecies and warnings with their resulting consequences. We have the bibliography of Jesus from four perspectives, letters of exhortation and encouragement for congregations, just like us. Together, they comprise a second manifestation of God's moral compass, so that when we are confused, or trouble, or in need of guidance, we can search the scriptures to find, to find our bearings and to get back on track. Particularly today with the concordances we have, Strong's Concordance, Cruden's Concordance, the Englishman's Concordance, and with the ele- electronic search engines that are built into the electronic Bibles. Second uh, Timothy 3, 13 to 17. Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things that you have learned, 
and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. But again, like brains, they only work if used. If used, we can rejoice with the psalmist who says in Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The third third manifestation of God's moral compass is Jesus Christ himself. For his life is an example, a model of behavior that we should follow. If we are following in the footsteps of Jesus, always looking to him as our guiding light, we'll not veer off the moral path. 1 Peter uh, 2, 21. For to this you are called, because Jesus also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. That keeps us on track. And following the moral compass. Hebrews uh, 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are uh, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus like a compass, the author and finisher of our faith, for, uh, who for the joy that was set before him endured the stake, uh, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus plainly declares that part of his role is to be trailblazer, guide, and compass. When he says in John 14, 6, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He is our lighthouse. Our guide through the darkness. John 8, 12. Jesus spoke unto them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Even in his pre-incarnate form, as Lord of the Old Testament, he performed this dual function of moral compass and guiding light of illumination, leading Israel along the paths of righteousness. 2 Samuel twenty two twenty nine says, For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. John compares Christ to a healing ensign uh, that Moses raised in the wilderness. Not because Christ was serpentine, but not by any stretch of imagination, but that the people might know where to look. That ensign was a constant, a fixed reference point, like true north. And the people had to keep in mind their bearings relative to that ensign, to know where it was at all times. So that when they looked upon it, their deadly snake bite could be healed. John 3, uh, 14 to 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. In our present, that moral compass is the familiar still, still voice, um, an audio beacon that gives us back to him that if we should that guides us back to him, we should go to astray. The sheep hear his voice, and they know them, they follow me. That's John 10, 27. We commonly refer to this voice as our conscience. It is a blending 
of our human spirit was the Holy Spirit, which Jesus called the Comforter. It's uh, paracletus in the Greek, meaning comforter, consoler, counselor, advisor, advocate, um, intercessor, strengthener. Um, Proverbs 20, 27 says, The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching the inner depths of his heart. And, uh, but I would caution, though, against equating the Holy Spirit with our conscience, for our conscience can become desensitized by repeating exposure to sin. We can convince ourselves that a particular action, behavior, thought process is not wrong, but it is at least permissible so that we become dead through recognizing its detrimental effects. It is like being seared with a hot iron, like a branding iron. Um, it, the hot iron burns the flesh, flesh, destroying the nerve endings in the vicinity of the burn. If it heals, it will heal over with scar tissue that is dead to the touch. Just so. 1 Timothy 4, uh, 1-3 now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter time, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So, the life of Christ is a much better compass than is our conscience. Conclusion. The limitations of the compass. Great as a moral compass may be, it does have a severe limitation. A moral compass can only point us in the right direction. It cannot compel us to go that way. That's an important thing. To it can only point us there. It cannot compel us to go that way. The path that we follow although it may be greatly affected by circumstances and outside influences, is ultimately the result of our choices. For example, if we indulge in wine or strong drink or recreational drugs, we impair our senses and make errors in judgment. Isaiah 28.7 says, But they who have erred through wine, through, intoxic through intoxicating green, are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way. Out of the way means not following the true path, not following the compass. Through intoxicating drink, they have error in vision. They stumble in judgment. So if we are to mature into the children of God, then we must take responsibility for our own choices. We can't be Flip Wilson anymore, folks, and say, the devil made me do it. We must admit our participation in the sin, ask forgiveness for it, and repent of it. A moral compass is necessary for that transformation. Look to it in any of its form, the law, the word, Christ himself, for guidance. Otherwise, we stumble aimlessly in circles of confusion. I just wish our leaders had a moral compass. But that would require a genuine belief in the sanctity of Scripture and a genuine faith. At most, they offer lip service to God. I fear that they are already just great red masses of scar tissue. Lord, I pray, protect us from our leaders be our compass and lead us back to the paths of righteousness.